is a very high motivator of other people because it's so um, it's so uh, contagious. I can't remember if I told you guys about when I you know I used to work in a child uh, a child foster care system right when I got out of college. Did I tell you about Roy Moss, the guy that was my trainer that uh, went got really angry at the conference? He changed my life. Hey, okay, look, I'm 22 years old, just got out of college. I have no idea who I am or what I'm going to do. And I was with a group called the Navigators, which is a discipleship training group. So we leave, I leave NC State, North Carolina, and moved to Fort Worth, Texas to, to minister at an Air Force base with servicemen, with discipleship, evangelism, and so on and so forth. Had to have a job, so I got a job at a children's home, Lena Pope Children's Home. I'm 22 years old. I now am the foster father living in a cottage with seven 17 year old to 15 year old boys, most of whom are headed toward being a sociopath. <laughs> and I'm your daddy <laughs> with no skills. Hi, <laughs> it's going to be kumbaya. And it was. Uh, I still pray for those guys. I, uh, I don't think I really helped them in their path. <laughs> I mean, we had baseball bats coming at me and knives coming at me. And I'm 22 years old, wanting to, you know, sing, pass it on, you know. So, <laughs> anyway, I learned a lot about reality. But the guy that trained me, Roy Moss, if, if you went to San Antonio, Texas, there's a statue for him. He's dead now. There's a statue for him for his work with, with children in Texas. Five years old than I was, and he liked me, and I liked him. And he said, "Let me train you in this because you might have some potential." He didn't know I had no potential at the time, so he told me about childcare, and he was a big conference guy. Let's go to this conference. Let's go to this conference because you've got to get the training about about what the government says about it and what uh, how to get kids education, discipline problems, motivate kids, systems. And he's get in there, so he would take me to the conferences. So I walk into a hotel one day, and the big you know big conference, some national conference. And I'm kind of interested in all the workshops. And he stops and he gets this really angry look on his face. He goes, Look around here. This is kind of how he trained me. It's the Socratic method. It gets you really confused, right? Look around. So I'm looking around. Okay, I'm learning something here. I said, He said, What do you see? I said, I don't know. I see a lot of executives in suits, guys in ties walking from place to place. They were leaving the workshop that they were, you know, leading and just walking into another one. And he goes, these are all the guys giving the workshops. I said, yeah, I'm going to go see him. He goes, where are their notebooks? I went, what? He goes, where are these guys' notebooks? I said, they don't have any. He says, that's the problem. You always ought to have a notebook. And what he was saying was the guys that had reached a certain level of competency kind of just walked in and did their shtick and then want to sit in their friend's conference and just sat there. And he was, he was obsessive about being a permanent learner. I never forgot that, and I've never been to any kind of event of learning without some way to input data. It might be my smartphone, it might be my laptop, it might be a pen in my hand. But I mean, it almost traumatized me. I almost went PTSD because I'm like, <laughs> what am I supposed to learn right now? But but he had passion. He had passion for the kids, and he had passion for the learning process. And he has changed. I thank you, Roy Moss. He's changed my life because I am, am an obsessive learner, and I love it, and I feel great about it. And it's done me a lot of good. Second thing is, um, oh, by the way, do that with your people. Do what he did with your people. They need to see that. Remember when we did the driver's training, finding drivers? If you want your people to raise their energy by 10 degrees, to be 10 degrees more energy, what have you got to do? 
You got to sit there, your hair on fire, and dance on the table. You got to be shameless. That's what passion does. That's why. That's why some leaders that just want to have passion from a laptop try to do it. You can't do it. You got to be with people. You got to. You got to be about four times more excited than they are to get them going. And then letter C, um, lack of passion is good information for the leader. In other words, passion is diagnostic. If I'm not feeling any passion, I gotta go, why is that happening? I mean, certainly work is hard. I mean, you know, you climb on roofs or you you turn cranks, you make phone calls you don't want to make, you have hard conversations, you do Excel spreadsheets until they're coming at your ears. But sometime during that, you know, every week there's gotta be something. And if I find myself showing up, no passion, no feeling, no nothing, that's a sign that I've got to dig into there. Because God meant me to have some kind of desire for what I'm doing. Alright, so so use it, the lack of it. We talked with we talked today in our our, our our checking in about how lack of passion is a problem. It's a problem that gives you information. John, let me ask a question here. Information from your direct. Help me understand what, what do you mean by that? Um did I put that down there? Yeah, you had clarity, motivation, and then information from your directs. What do you mean by that? Letter C. Oh, I changed it. No wonder you're confused. Um, the lack of information or passion from your directs is good for you. If you're not seeing anything from them as well as yourself, if they're not passionate... Oh, then something's wrong. That's just a, a kind yeah. of a diagnostic. Yes. Okay. It's, you look at performance, you look at numbers, you look at engagement, and you look at passion. It's just helpful information. All right, um, here, here's the, the, the three things that passion is about. Number one, passion is from the core of you. In other words, you can't, well, if you look at like how, when you study people who are really passionate and really love what they do, you find out that as differentiation Increases, passion increases. As differentiation decreases, passion decreases. People who are differentiated, we talk about differentiation a lot. It's being your own person, it's having your own deep waters, it's guarding your heart, it's being separate and having your own boundaries, your own identity. People that are, if so if you're stuck in a people-pleasing mode, if you are controlled by the emotions of others, if you try to rescue people, if you're somewhat codependent, if you enable people, if you give power to other people, it will kill your passion because it's not your core. It's your, I'm afraid of people, I don't like to let them down, I feel bad, I don't want to hurt them, it will kill your passion. The more differentiated you are, which is how God is, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, passion increases. And if you remember, when we did the marriage retreat, I talked about the metaphor of passion in marriage. I'm going to use that as an analogy because I think it's helpful here. Is you've got weather. I'm not a weather expert. But you've got the earth and you've got the sky, right? And there's a thing called lightning. And lightning comes down and blows everything up. Some of y'all are better at the physics of this than I am. What causes lightning? Buildup of static. So buildup of static. And somehow there's got to be some release. Discharge. And there's an earth and a sky. And actually somebody told me it goes from here to here. Like it goes from earth to the sky. Not, not the other way around. But that's another ground. But the point is, the sky and the earth have got to be differentiated from each other. 
the sky's got to be here and the earth's here. What happens if sky and earth are together? Nothing happens. There can't, there's no room for the passion to increase. There's no room for it to build up and, and get more and more intense. And I use that illustration in the marriage retreat. That's why couples that aren't differentiated, they're mesh with each other, they rescue each other, they're afraid of conflict, trying to please each other all the time. Their earth and sky are together and they can't get close. Like the great country song, you know, Tack will appreciate this. Um, how can I miss you if you won't go away? Just a great meaningful concept. But that's a, that's a concept about differentiation. I can't miss somebody when they're all over me all the time. Do you miss me right now, Dave? Do you, do you really miss me? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, is that, so, John, is that just, you're saying that's a human condition, that we need space to not take for granted, to not, I mean, to appreciate, and that you're calling that differentiation. Yes. The ability to, when I'm to differentiated, be away from. I can you can go space. smoke some cigars with the boys and, yes. and yeah, that's a differentiation. Of, yes. Okay. And God, it's kind of what, how Henry Cloud and I wrote seven books about boundaries selling three million copies. Like, it was about God calls us to be differentiated as, as well as loving and caring and sacrifice and all that, and also this. Well, the same thing occurs in leadership, in passion is that if you're not differentiated, then you will not feel passionate for what you do. So that's why Scott and I spend so much time saying, well, what do you feel? Well, what do you feel about it? Well, they, they think this. I understand what they think. What do you feel? <coughs> because when we get to what you feel, then we start getting that core self and feeding that core self and growing that core self up and developing it. And all of a sudden, you start going, I feel passion for speaking or Crunching numbers or sales or strategic execution because now you're back to you. That's why we, we're so obsessive about finding the core you. So, John, how do you encourage that? But what are the kind of steps to encourage that? More differentiation within the boundary of kind of, you know, the role that somebody's in. Is well, the big, two, the big two differentiating skills are always saying no and confronting. Saying no is the defensive part, like in football. When you say no, Jason wants something from me and I don't have time, I gotta say no, he's gotta say no to me. And the offensive part is going to confront, like Howard had a good confrontation with somebody this morning. That increases Howard's differentiation. So the more I say no and the more I confront, I'll get there. That's helpful. Yep. Uh, letter B, timelessness, I talked about that before, but um, this is kind of a spiritual part of passion, is that God is timeless, right? He's outside of time. We're in time. He's outside of it. And so God sees everything going on at one time. And in some way, passion, it sort of brings you into eternity. I mean, I don't know how heaven's going to be. I don't know what the Bible says, but it's sort of mysterious. But we know that there's going to be a different function of time in heaven. And so when you're doing something that you love, that you, you finish doing, you go, gosh, I'm hungry, or I haven't taken a shower, or... The phone's ringing. That's kind of a little taste of heaven there. And it's a wonderful place to be as a leader. And the third part is um, passion can be positive and it can be negative. Um, Henry Clow wrote a book called Nine, Nine uh, Things That Every Leader Needs to Know. And one of those chapters, and you, you need to read it sometime. I, I, I think we assigned it. There's a chapter called Hate Well. Yep. And, and good church-going, serious Christians have to hate well because God hates well. You've got to hate the right things. So positive passion means I love my spouse and great evenings and great food and great vacations and great movies and great TVs and great worship experiences, and et cetera, et cetera. 
And negative passion is I really hate when someone is passive-aggressive, or I really hate guilt messages, or I really hate it when someone uh, judges somebody else, or I really hate it when somebody's not easy, not, not kind. And you go to Psalm 101, where David says the things he hates. And he says, I will not allow, allow faithlessness to enter my household. I hate it. I will not allow deceit to enter my family. So, passion's got to be positive, and passion's got to be negative. And sometimes leaders have a hard time with negative passion. Because they want to be seen as you know, optimistic, and you know, let's make lemonade. But sooner or later, you got to hate bad things that are going to be toxic to your organization. That's the protective aspect. That's why, like, Mark you know, had some very tough conversations, right? And because he's passionate about protecting what God's given him, and so he had to make some people upset and be disruptive. That's a negative passion, but it's a good one. All right, um, some problems in passion. The first one is imbalances. And what I mean by imbalances in duty and willpower is that, remember I said earlier that we all have duties. I mean, God says you've got a job to do, and you've got to go bring the kingdom to the world. But if that's all you've got, if the only thing driving you is duty and willpower, you're going to burn out or you're not going to do a good job. You're just going to lose the mojo. So one of the problems is when somebody has a lot of guilt messages that came from family or from church or from education or whatever, and they just can't feel the passion. I was working with somebody in another part of the country yesterday, and uh, he's, um, he's in the medical field, very good at, has his own practice, very good at this, and his his wife is, actually, no, it's a she. She's a medical professional. And her husband is a business guy. And he's really kind of an emotional guy, very passionate, kind of the opposite of the normal American marriage. And, and she's like, when she comes home, he goes, you know, I was frustrated today, or man, I killed it, or somebody not driving me crazy. And I, I love having those kind of discussions. And she was like, well, I, had, I went to work today, and I saw 12 patients, and I think I did it at work. And he's really feeling frustrated, like, I want to get more out of you. So I started talking to her. I said, well, you're a nice person. You're a really good professional. I said, you married this kind of emotional guy who's feeling lonely. And she said, I'm trying to help here, but he speaks a world that I don't know about. I said, what do you mean? She goes, I came from a family where mom worked all the time, and dad was a professional, and we had a very high work ethic. I mean, solid work ethic, but we never talked about relationships or feelings or anything. She says, so I love this guy, but I don't get what he's doing. So then I started doing some work on what it's like to miss your mother. Things started happening. <laughs> Things started opening up. And she started going, is this what we're talking about? I said, yeah. And I said, asked the husband, how are you doing? He goes, oh my gosh, I'm in love with her again. Because she started feeling some losses about a mother that was always busy. But my point was, she was motivated by duty and obligation, and it almost it, it was just it was hurting her marriage. So, don't be stuck in duty and obligation. If you find yourself, for example, all every day saying "I should, I should, I should," there's a problem. We should, we should be good people. <clears throat> but if that's all there is, guys, we're under the law and we're stuck in the Old Testament, and there's a lot more to Christianity than "I should, I should, I should." As as Scott and I would say, as, as therapists, don't shit on our couch. Right. Any different conversation? No, I've, I, I right. went out and said that. Oh, you do? We did. Don't shit on me, and I won't shit on you. <laughs> the second thing is um, being disconnected from the real self. I talked about the core self, and they're the same thing. 
But um, a lot of times when people have a some kind of overdeveloped loyalty to the food, their family of origin, they won't be able to feel a lot of passion. They're still feeling mom's feelings, dad's feelings. I'm a Smith, and the Smiths do this, and all, you know, this is, this is how they look at life. This is how they eat their cereal. This is how they put on their sock. This is the kind of way they go to church. When you have an overdeveloped loyalty, what you find is you really can't feel your own feelings. And that's why everybody, everybody, everybody has got to go through sort of a, a, uh, an adolescent period with your mom and your dad's ways and customs and beliefs and strengths and weaknesses. And I know when I've got somebody who can't feel their own feelings, one of the questions I'll ask them is, have you ever struggled with your mom and dad? And the ones that go, no, they're still my best friends. We live next door. We talk to each other all the time. I'll go, well, you can keep doing that, but you'll never feel feelings and you'll never have passion. Or you can do something hard, which is to say, sometimes I don't agree with him. Sometimes she's a, she's controlling. Sometimes he's a jerk. And then they go through a panic attack and then they get well have feelings. Point is, the only way you get your, your, your real self is you've got to question the food and feel the negative feelings toward the food and then do the great stuff the Bible says about accepting and protesting and getting mad and grieving and forgiving and asking forgiveness and all that stuff. If you've never done that with family of origin, you're going to have a problem in passion. And the third thing is um, lack of freedom and choice. Now what I'm talking about here is um, passion by definition is really messy. It's really hard to be kind of anal retentive and have life in compartments and be very organized and be a very passionate person. I mean, you got to have structure, you got to have discipline, all that. But when passion comes out, sometimes it just leaks out of the place. Uh, over the place. I was um, I was working with a, a company, where um, working with the board and working with their um, not their board but their executive team, and uh, we got into, you know. So they have a good strategic plan, but they're not operating as a team. And so I'm trying to get to the end of the, I had about a two-hour process with them. You know, here's, here's year one, here's the year three, here's year five. And we got to about year two about why it wasn't working. And I've been talking about vulnerability, and you've got to be open, and you've got to be honest. And finally one person said, I'm just really mad at you talking to somebody else. I think it was sales was talking to market. No, sales was talking to finance. They always don't like each other. And then uh, finance said, I don't, I don't, I'm really mad at you too. And I had to stop the whole thing and say, we're not going to even go ahead with a strategic plan. Forget the strategic plan. If I keep bulling ahead, you know, culture eat strategy for breakfast, we got to work this out. And it took us about 45 minutes, and everything went better after that. But I had to pay attention to passion. If I hadn't paid attention to passion, it had been one of those meetings where everybody take checks list and nods their heads and there's death by meeting and nothing ever happens. Okay, here's some skills to develop. And this will help you with your own. <coughs> Deal with your internal prohibitions. You know, I always, Scott and I always talk about your self-talk. Like, what are you saying? Like, I'm a loser or I'm an idiot I'm doing something wrong here. We all have internal prohibitions that say passion is a bad thing to feel. Some of you guys had kind of positive messages about uh, message in your head about passion, like, hey, that's a strong feeling you had or whatever. Some of you guys had pretty negative experiences about passion. Anybody got some negative self-talk about passion? 
that you heard about explosive feelings, about timelessness, about dropping everything and doing this. Anybody ever have a negative? I can think of three right now that I got from my phone. My phone. I think mine is, um, it's so individualized. You're so much focused on yourself. And when I'm talking about your passion, it's way too much about you. It's way too much about you because you've got to be a team player in life. Very good. So there's the kind of passion is so selfish mantra. mantra. Good. Yeah, you can't celebrate too much on the field and you can't cry after a game. Can't celebrate too much in the field and can't cry after a game. That reminds me of that story about George Bush. I think I mentioned it. Like He, he said that when he came home after he hit like a grand slam, right. mom would say, yes, but how'd the team do? <laughs> Don't make it about you. Yeah. What else? You may ever wonder if I feel a lot of passion, I might do something bad. Might get impulsive. Might leave the family and, and, and get a, a ticket around the world and be gone for ten years. So tied to responsibility. You can't be too passionate, then you'll be irresponsible. If you get that's the whole point. Is I can't hold responsibility and passion in the same head. If I have too much of this, I'm going to become a flake and drop all responsibility. That's another mantra. The thing that's really helped me about the internal prohibitions, because I think about this a lot and I work on a lot, is one word. A guy named David. David. Think about it. A stud, right? Killed the ten thousands, killed a giant, all this good stuff. Not perfect, did some bad things. But a total passionate person. I mean, that's why we read the Psalms as much as we do, because the guy was emotional and he danced out of his loincloth. That's where I'm going here. Yeah. Because Mike was kind of talking about an issue was kind of PG, I wasn't going to say, but no. Who remembers the movie that Richard Gere played? I don't know, it was twenty years ago. Richard Gere, the actor, he was it's called David the King. And there's this one scene where he reenacts the, uh, after God's done some great things, he's got this towel on him, and he's dancing to God down the streets, and his wife is angry at him, and the people are thinking, is he nuts? And he didn't care, because he's so passionate. And every time, I wonder, oh my gosh, is this going to make me like a less responsible, dutiful guy, or is it going to be about me, or is it too messy, or whatever? I go back, hey. Man after God's own heart, not a bad epitaph on the tombstone. So whatever that means, I'm going there. So when you feel those prohibitions, think about it. the fact that God sort of like built that into somebody. You've got to deal with it and let it, let it come out. Second thing is you need relationships which create safety and curiosity. What I found about leaders that really accomplish a lot of things a lot of things, is they're, they're curious people. They don't mind kind of dropping what they're thinking and their framework and their agenda and saying, why'd you say that or what happened? Um, Sinek wrote a really good book called The Power of Why and about how he can kind of go into an organization and just keep asking why and then they finally, finally find out why they're not making money or why they're not doing market share or whatever because if you ask why enough, people get to reality. And the problem is, our leadership, we've been trained to ask nothing but how. Now, who knows the difference between the value of a how and the value of a why? They're, very, they're both good, but there's a the value difference between the two. Some of you could spend more time on the difference, on these words.
in our quality uh, in manufacturing, they actually there's a tool like a Six Sigma tool called the Five Whys. And you, the you, five you, Whys. You, you, you ask why five times to really draw down to a root cause. Mm -hmm. Well, why'd you do that? Well, why'd you do that? So you're you're trying to really get it root understanding the root cause. If it was the five hows, it would not be as No, you, you wouldn't. You wouldn't because the how comes after the why. Mm -hmm. The how means how do we fix this. But a lot of times we're trained in kind of our box thinking, our totally linear thinking. So if somebody says, I've got a problem, they say, okay, how, how are we going to fix this? Well, first let's uh, set you up with a program instead of why. <clears throat> There's an old story told about the difference between um, a coach and a therapist. Where if you're in LA, you're driving around and you want to go to Staples Center and watch the Lakers lose, um, and you get lost and you pull over to the side. If a coach is standing there on the street and you say, "Excuse me, I've got to get in the game. I'm totally lost in LA," a coach will say, "Well, you take two rights and a left and it's down the street." Oh, thank you very much. If you pull off and you're lost and you see a therapist and you say, "Excuse me, I lost." The therapist will say, "Oh, how long have you lived in LA? Twenty years." Why don't you know? <laughs> That's the difference between the two. Now, I want to get the why stuff going, because I want to understand why our people aren't working together. I want us to understand why there's no motivation. I want to understand why we're beating our heads on the wrong product. And then we'll get to the how. I was talking to another team, the team in Dallas. A lot of, our Dallas team has a lot of horse people, ranchers and so forth and so forth. And the guy says, Oh, that's how I can tell if a horse is smart, if they're curious. I'm not a horse guy. I said, I said why? Because I wanted to be smart. He says, he says, he's got a bunch of horses. He says, I'll go out. And you know this breath mint you keep? He says, I'll start um, pulling them out of my pocket, and I'll kind of uh, squeeze them together and make a funny sound. And the really smart horse will come over and stick the nose in time to try to figure out what I'm doing. And the dumb horses just kind of walk around in circles out here. He says, but I can always tell my dumb horses from my smart horses by curiosity. How many times are you saying why in a week? Are you going how? How can I get this done? Or is it which puts you in kind of the execution without understanding mode? Or are you saying, why would that be? Why would she, my, why would my assistant not react like that? Instead of how do I fix it? What's going on there? You've got to have in the medical field the DX proceeds. All right, tack it. What do I mean by this? Diagnosis precedes the prescription. Your diagnosis precedes your trip, precedes your description. Why? And that's where passion comes from. It's being curious. Being curious about philosophy and God and sports and your company. But but you be you better be asking why, like every day at some level. That's part of your job as a leader, and it'll create um good passion. Letter C is have experiences, and the whole point here is. Passion is about rolling up your sleeves. We have a tendency in American business now to all do it on our laptop because laptops are great and the web's great and there's so many resources out there. But it's when you stop and put it down and you go talk to somebody or you go on a sales call. One thing I love about what Mike's doing right now is he's the VP of sales, right? And he's, you're probably learning some stuff that you knew 20 years ago that you're relearning, right? There's new stuff out there, right? Actually, I'm, I'm reading some of the best books out there to try to find out what's the latest thinking on sales. Right. Because I don't know what right. the latest thinking. And you're having experiences. So, guys, get out of your head every week and do something. You've got to be physical. It's got to be relational. But get out from the, the mental part. 
and then letter D, evaluate the fruit. What you find out is that if, if you're doing the system that God made right, if you engage in passion, your life will be better, your marriage will be better, your kids will be better kids, you'll be a happier person, and your business should be better. So, passion drives all these things. Put it into your repertoire. But remember, the number one thing to, to, to always keep in mind about passion is that you've got to be going to your core, nobody else's core. And that sounds selfish, but don't ever forget Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart for from it for the issues of life. Issues is a passionate word. You owe it to yourself and you owe it to your impact to feel the passion. A couple questions for growth. Um, do you have a lost passion in your work or mission? What happened to it? Which of the skills would best help you develop your passion? How many minutes have I got? You have... 11 minutes and 16 seconds. Well, I, wanna, I don't want to take that much time. I just want a few people, well, I'll give you some time on this, to think about your lost passion. Because we all had them when we were, I don't know, 5 or 15 or 25 or 35. And then what happens? Well, life gets busy. We become the human doing instead of the human being. And we, we have phone calls and we have projects and we have budgets and we have pressures and we have kids. But you've had some passions. And I just want you to respect it enough to think, I need to revisit that. For example... You know, I'm kind of on the right brain. You know, I've got a band and all that. And, and also, I'm a comic book freak. Really? Comic book freak. Yeah, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I just loved all the Superman and Batman and all those guys. And I lost it. About 10 years old, I discovered Girls and Boy Scouts. Kind of like took me away from all that. Um, so, I grew up and go through school, get married. And we have kids, and I'm walking around to in Tustin, California. I think Barbie sent me to get some diapers. And there's a comic book store next to me, next to the grocery store. And I thought, comic book store? We just had a rack back in the old days and at a drugstore. So I walk in there and I go, What are you guys about? And they say, Oh, it's comic books. I'd had a comic for 15 years. <clears throat> so I'm looking at all the stuff, and there's this one artist that I really liked a lot, this thing called Fantastic Four and X Men and Hulk and Spider Man. I said, This is the artist. The guy goes, guy named Jack Kirby. I said, who's Jack Kirby? He goes, oh, he and Stan Lee did some stuff. This is way before the movies, right? Before they ruled the world. And I said, hey, I like his stuff. He's really powerful and he's good. And he says, yeah, he's, he's like the best. I said, um, this is when I went to the experience piece. I went, is he dead? He goes, no, he's alive. I said, where does he live? He said, Thousand Oaks. That's an hour and a half for me. And I said, thank you very much. So I went home, told Barbie about it, and I just got on the phone. This is before internet. I was four years old. And I picked up the phone, and I said, information, thousand bucks, Jack Kirby. I gave him over my call, and he says, hello. I said, hi, I'm John Townsend. That's me, the Jack Kirby. He goes, hey, this is me. I said, I'm a big fan. Can I come see you? He goes, yeah, when you come, be the camera moment. It's like, it'd be like a heart surgeon going to Christian Barnard. <laughs> I said, okay, right, I got some kids. See, yeah, I love kids. And I, we drove over there and we spent, he died 15 years ago, but we spent time with him. And, and um, I kind of like 
got me into all that stuff again. That Barbie had a big 40th birthday party with Jack Kirby coming over there. I had this wonderful relationship with him, just because I kind of followed it, right? I lost it, and now I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of engaged with that world and all the geeks involved and all that sort of thing. But I, I, I get a lot of joy out of that. So, what's the lost one? Not the one you're in now, but I bet you got a lost one. Might be a sport, might be a business thing, might be a money thing, spiritual thing, I don't care. Let's redeem that lost passion. Just think about it for a second. What have you gotten too busy that you want to get back to? Except for Streeter, he has more fun than any of us. Yeah, he's trying to pick which one. <laughs> well, I can't just do more elk hunting. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, it's, it's kind of like you got to lose it. He never right. lost it, so yeah. I don't know. So you got a big five pointer. I guess you got a seven pointer. Seven by seven. Right. You just got too busy for him. Life took over. Water skiing for me. I, mean, I live on a lake and I didn't water ski all this past year, which is the go. first time ever. There you go. And, and I miss it. Yep. You miss it. You love it. Yeah. It's a good thing. So it's a good thing to kind of go, maybe I need to retool something to get that back to be yeah. better for you. Good. good. Water skiing. I'd still like to play football and basketball. It was a big part of your high school, big part of your junior high. Yeah. Any way that can happen in some. No, the orthopedic surgeon said you really ought to quit. <laughs> <laughs> not football. I mean, that, when when I decided not to play at Purdue and walk on. So that's that's fine. that was it. You kind of hung it up. But basketball, I'd still like to play in the men's league. Yeah, but no, yeah, right. I'm not going through another torn Achilles. Right, but but you know, guys do something. They either coach it or do fantasy football. But you're good at the game and you understand the strategy and intricacies. Some way to stay involved in it because it brings a lot of joy. Anybody else? One thing. Think about. I'm, I'm finding my way back to some of them, like uh, fly fishing trip uh, yeah. with Vernon John, and to see that light now, that's that's one. Um, there's one that's probably oddball and very me, as you guys have gotten to know me. Um, Scott turned me on to a book that's just integrating so many parts of my world. I'm, I'm a student learner. I, I made a comment in a social setting once that I just can't read a book without a pencil and a highlighter, and I stopped the conversation because they all turned to me to, "What in the blazes do you mean?" Right. I just, I love it, and I am beside myself reading this book called The Developing Mind, Integrating Brain Physiology Relationships and uh, Psychology. And wow. I'm like, 
integrating. I love it. I mean, I just diving in, and it's psychology, uh, brain, and relationships. It's very much related to what we do here, but it is also integrating all of my leadership experience, my operational experience, knowledge management. I'm only like in chapter one. Oh my gosh! Go to know note. I'm like, oh, oh, I'm, I'm digging it. So, I'm, who knows where it's going? I'm, I'm just. Like, I can feel you right now. Oh, I yeah. feel the energy right now. Yeah. yeah. Who people look going? at me and I, I disengage a room when I say something like that because they go, huh? huh? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they, that's not what they're trying to tell them to do. Um, but remember, it will not make you less productive. It will not make you irresponsible. It'll make you like David. He got a lot done. So, respect and passion. All right. Is that off? If you turn that off, I feel weird. Uh,